This evening's conference is on St. Joseph, patron saint of the Universal Church, declared by Blessed Pius the Ninth, and um, called the adopting father of Jesus, though he was more adopted by God than he was than he adopted Jesus. Um, a fatherhood that's we can't fit it into a category. It's beyond anything that we can experience and know in this life. A supernatural fatherhood. St. Joseph had to be prepared by God to be the guardian of the virginity of Mary as well as the guardian of the, the Redeemer and to teach the Redeemer what it means to be a male in his society. So, given these extraordinary ministries, these extraordinary uh, things within his vocation, he had to be prepared. And so Josephine theologians would say that while he was not given the Immaculate Conception, he was probably sanctified in the womb after receiving original sin and, and then given extraordinary graces so that he would be able to guide and direct and be the head of the Holy Family. Think about it. He has authority over the queen of heaven and earth while he was on earth and authority on the, of, on the God-man. We also have to keep in mind that the incarnation of the second person of the Blessed Trinity and the redemptive acts of the Lord Jesus, including the resurrection and ascension, in some way Joseph prepared Jesus for this. So in some sense, we owe him a giant thank you and honor for what he did for us in preparing Jesus on his human nature to be able to interact and, and found our, our religion by which we communicate with God. Just like the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, too, had his Annunciation. We have to keep in mind that when Mary and Joseph were, quote, engaged, which at the time of Christ was really a marriage, but not solemnized yet, um, they were probably matched by their parents. And to think of Joseph as an 80-year-old uh, marrying uh, Mary is, is incomprehensible to think about it because it would just look so very odd to the people interacting with Joseph and the fact that he worked so diligently with our Lord for so many years in the hidden life. Nevertheless, when Mary comes back visiting Elizabeth and she's pregnant and he sees it, he feels somehow he doesn't belong to her. He feels he has to withdraw from the marriage, and that's why the scriptures say that he has to 
He wants to divorce her quietly. And that's when he gets his enunciation from an angel, telling him to take, continue to take Mary as your wife and to name this child that's in your wife Jesus, Emmanuel. This is your vocation to carry out the ministry of taking care of Mary as well as fostering Jesus' humanity. That meant, therefore, that somehow when he consented to do this, he was given the heart of a father, even though he didn't generate Jesus. But he certainly was essentially involved in, quote, educating the Lord Jesus in his humanity, what it means to be a male in society, and to teach the little one what it means to be a carpenter or a Mr. Fix-It in the town. The first few years of our blessed Lord would be mostly kept in the harm, uh, arms and place of, the, of Mary. But when he turned about seven or eight, maybe nine, that's when he would start going to the workshop. Also, that was the time when Joseph would take charge of his education, teaching him how to sing, teaching him how to read, teaching him how to uh, work as a carpenter. And then Jesus would have to watch Joseph interact with other men because he would acquire that masculine spirituality that we see when Jesus enters into uh, uh, conflict with people later on in his public life. Joseph saw in his life the Redeemer, the Savior, and probably in, in a conversation with his beloved wife, Mary, he learned that his purpose was to prepare for our redemption and so consented to it. Now, we don't have anything written down, but what we can gather from what marriage does and in a communication of gifts of life and love and truth, one has to presume since the Blessed Virgin Mary was filled with wisdom and grace that she would explain scriptures to him, and put him at ease as to what his role and his mission and his identity would be. He's called the Savior of the Savior because the angel appears to him at the time that Herod is going to kill the babies around the area as a result of, of the wise men telling him that there's a, a king that they want to visit. He's able to leave Nazareth on the fly and start the journey of 200 miles on foot as he's well equipped with gold, frankincense, and myrrh to pay the way to get there and to know what to do when he gets there into Egypt, and to set up shop if necessary, find a place to stay, all of those things. When they leave and return back to Bethlehem, he is also given another inspiration from an angel to go to Nazareth instead and take up shop there. The fact that Joseph receives visitations from the angels is usually a sign of wisdom, 
holiness that he has. It's also interesting that the angel doesn't appear to Mary on those instances, and that she follows his lead, being the head of the Holy Family. As I said, during that time when uh, Joseph is uh, teaching the Lord to Jesus, our Lord has to watch him haggle, has to watch him build things, and get bills paid, uh, make sure that um, there's enough food in the household, and also learn to, to, to uh, be able to go help farmers with the crops at the time, because that was generally another job that a lot of people in the small town at that time would have. Today, the, the last time I looked, uh, Nazareth has about 50,000 people in it. They didn't have that many at the time of our Lord. Throughout his hidden life, Joseph, we presume, just lived the daily grind, as most people do, and cared for his beloved wife and child, and watched his child become a teenager. And then when the teenager goes off, we presume 12, 13 years old, and stays uh, in the temple when Mary and Joseph think he, that he's within a group of people coming back to home, then they get kind of worried about him, and they spend three days looking for him. And then our Lord answers Mary with a cryptic answer, what didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And we presume that he probably explained further on the way back home, because that particular sentence doesn't say everything, but it hints at that there's, hints at the fact that this is no ordinary person. From our point of view, when we're reading this in the Sacred Scriptures, Mary and Joseph knew exactly what was going on, and were probably told in greater depth once they left, but it's not written in Sacred Scripture. Now, when we look carefully at the Sacred Scriptures, we find that when Jesus begins his public ministry, There is no Joseph around. There's the Blessed Virgin Mary. We find her encouraging our Lord to perform a miracle at Cana. But we don't hear anything about Joseph. But we do hear Jesus talking about his heavenly Father, implying that there's a deeper relationship that the Son of God has to God the Father. We know that as believers, certainly the people listening to our Lord wouldn't necessarily understand all of those implications. Even though we don't see Joseph there in the public ministry of Jesus, we do see something of him in the Lord. We see a man who is sure of himself, it's not only because he's God, but because he's grown up now in his 20s in Nazareth, working at the bench with his, with his extraordinary father, foster father, virginal father. 
And we see in the public ministry of our Lord how capable he is at arguing, how wonderfully capable he is at discussing things. We also see how capable he is of debating Pharisees, if not the Sadducees. We also see how wonderful he treats women as uh, without looking down upon them, without thinking he's superior to women. He's very, very loving with women, very gentle with women. Has a high, seems to have a high appreciation of women. He doesn't, he doesn't try to be uh, a macho man. We also see in our blessed Lord something of anger now and again. Remember, he gets angry at Peter, who tries to stop him from the cross and the crucifixion. We see uh, Jesus getting angry at the temple, whipping people out. You wouldn't find the Blessed Virgin Mary doing that. And he gets very violent at that particular point. He gets a whip. We don't know where the whip comes from. Well, all I'm saying is, is that masculine strength he had in some way discover working with Joseph. And it's something of Joseph by osmosis, you know, kind of entered into the humanity of Jesus, even though he is God. And he wanted to act like a man. He wanted to learn like a man, even though as God he knew everything. That's the mystery of the Incarnation, Jesus Christ, true God, true man. Sometimes he acts more as a man than as God. Other times he acts more like a God than as man. But when he's acting as man, we have to kind of see a mirror image of Joseph's influence, Joseph's causality, Joseph's ability to foster, mature him, uh, help him grow. Now, given the fact that Joseph had such an extraordinary vocation, ministering over the Son of God and also ministering over the Blessed Virgin Mary, this is quite more extraordinary than any pope, bishop, or priest could ever have in the universal church. When you're in charge of God and you can command God on earth, and you can ask things from Mary, and she has to follow your, your will, uh, that means you're going to have special graces uh, to be able to guide your holy family in such a fashion. So, that's why we, in part, thank St. Joseph for what he did then in time, and why in heaven he's probably the greatest saint after his dearly beloved Mary. We call giving him in theology protodulia, whereas we give Mary hyperdulia. That's Greek words for honor. Some of the great saints and blesseds have taught that 
Joseph was even assumed into heaven, body and soul, as pious opinion. St. Francis de Sales didn't think it was a pious opinion. He thought it was obvious, wrote about it. St. John Twenty-Third once taught to a group of women in a small gathering in the Vatican that he, he believed piously that St. Joseph was assumed into heaven, body, and soul after Mary, because the Holy Family wanted to be together. And the Holy Family, in part, saved us. Now, uh, in addition to these uh, facets of uh, St. Joseph, we also have to realize that when he died, he also didn't get into heaven immediately, like the patriarchs and other giant saints of the Old Testament. He too had to wait. And that means he waited in what is called the limbo of the just. And while they're waiting, we presume he prayed and prayed. When Jesus descended into hell, if you remember your creed, descendants into hell means going into the specific uh, place in hell um, called the limbo of the just to release them into heaven, the resurrection, as well as to release those in purgatory who are now purified for heaven. There's a famous poem written by, I believe, a sister Anna many, many decades ago in which Jesus comes into limbo. And it's a very, very long poem, a very important poem. And towards the very end of the poem, it, it, it says something very touching, which I'll share with you here in a moment. And there Jesus was, splendid as the morning sun and fair, as only God is fair. And they, confused with joy, knelt to adore, seeing that he wore five crimson stars he never had before. No canticle at all was sung, none toned a psalm or raised a greeting song. A silent man alone of all that throng found tongue, not any other, close to his heart. When the embrace was done, old Joseph said, How is your mother? How is your mother, son? It would make sense since he had such an exceptional marriage of friendship and love. For those of you that want to learn more about St. Joseph and don't have the time to read the many, many, many books written about him, there was a wonderful papal exhortation by St. John, the, um, uh, John Paul back in 1998, I believe it was. Uh, no, that's false. Uh, maybe 1988 or 89 the um, Guardian of the Redeemer. And you can find it on the web very easily. 
It takes about 45 minutes to an hour to read it. It's only about 20 pages at most. And in that particular document, the Holy Father brings out many of these themes that I've just briefly touched upon and exemplifies them with sacred scripture and sacred tradition on the importance of knowing who Joseph was and loving Joseph and praying to Joseph because he does bring many, many graces and gifts to, to, to especially to boys and young men as well as uh, take caring, taking care of the church, too, in his own way. Um, you'll find in that particular document an enormous amount of theology that I haven't gotten the time to go into, but it will pay a, a great deal of delight to you when you read some of these sectors, in the, some of these paragraphs, rather, in the document. We owe St. Teresa of Avila a big thank you back there in the Renaissance period when she started to encourage people to pray to St. Joseph, go to St. Joseph. It was an, an unusual thing for any saint at that time to, to do. And as a result of telling people to pray, that every time she prayed to St. Joseph, he answered her favors, he got favors for her. More and more over the centuries, churches began to be named in the Western church, or the Western world, St. Joseph. And more communities took St. Joseph as their patron saint, both men and women, as my own province here in the East takes Joseph as its patron. That particular uh, uh, exhortation refl reflects the fathers of the church who, while not in plenitude, still uh, give a certain foundation for our understanding of St. Joseph. After all, the fathers of the church, they were busy arguing issues on the Trinity on, uh, on the role of Jesus and his, as God and as man, also defending Mary's virginity. And so there wasn't much time to develop a lot of theology and thinking about St. Joseph, except that maybe he was an old man and he had brothers and sisters and there was this uh, um, so-called gospel of, uh, a pseudo-gospel of, and I forgot the, the last name, uh, apocryphal literature that, that had some, a lot of different crazy things saying about St. Joseph, and that kept him in obscurity all the centuries. Sometimes in the 8th, ninth, and 10th centuries in, in mystery plays that people would put on, poor St. Joseph was kind of portrayed as a griper, a, a, a complainer, sometimes given to too much drink, and kind of old, and that kind of helped explain why he could preserve Mary's virginity. And that, that's all they could go by. It was mostly false junk, but that's the way it worked in popular religiosity at the time. It wasn't really until about the time of the uh, Council of Constance that John Gerson tried to convince the bishops for three hours to return to St. Joseph and to pray to him, but 
it didn't it didn't mean it it, it it made no difference it had no immediate effect it took that wonderful saint teresa of avila to be able to get the devotion going of course we have now in the history of of the spirituality the um, the wonderful Canadian saint um, up there in Toronto, who, um, whose name, again, I forgot because I didn't write anything down, um, who's had tremendous amount of miracles. Um, Bisset, uh, Andre Bisset just came to me. Uh, what a wonderful example of a, of a simple man who healed so many people by just saying to people, pray to Joseph as he did. And a lot of healings took place as a result. During the course of the 20th century, there wasn't much written about St. Joseph, but a, a, a number of churches were dedicated to him. And uh, there was some scientific writings in Latin or other languages that people normally didn't read. There's a, certainly a confraternity of St. Joseph that exists among the Capuchin fathers, but as far as I know, that remains solid and steadfast for not only in the 20th century, but began when they, when they began to their institute as a break-off of the Franciscans. Its experience has shown that the more we love St. Joseph and try to understand his role, the more we appreciate Mary for what he did for her. And the more we get to know St. Joseph experientially in praying to him, the more we also begin to understand Jesus a little bit more since he fostered him, since he was, since he was the one who represented God the Father on earth to him. And also, the more we begin to love St. Joseph, the more we can see that Mother Church, as, as weak as its members are, is still one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, and is still guided by the Holy Spirit. And even though the Church is in some serious crises right now, the sex abuse scandals, uh, and so many arguments taking place between bishops and, and theologians and priests. It's, it's very, very difficult on ordinary Catholics, including me, to still hold and still love this bride of Christ, the Church. And the more we love Joseph, the more we'll discover Notwithstanding the fact that we're not all one, we're not all holy, we're not all Catholic, we're not very apostolic, still, some of us at least, or many of us, still the institution is. That grace that came to Joseph, that grace also comes to us through the sacraments. And, and as we pray to St. Joseph, so we begin to see that our lifeblood is from those sacraments. And then even if we can't get to the sacraments because of COVID, we can still receive the graces of those sacraments by desire, through prayer, through yearning, through striving to get closer to our Lord in this terrible time of the, of the pandemic.
St. Joseph may not heal all of us, get the, the virus. St. Joseph is called the patron of the saint of the dying. Um, nevertheless, he still does what he can to help us. And so the, the more we enter into his mystery, the more we will begin to perhaps understand our own mystery, our own vocation, our own call to holiness. God bless you. Thank you very much, Father Basil. Um, we have uh, time for some questions tonight. Um, we have our first question uh, from Zoom. Um, you mentioned in the talk uh, there, there have been many books written on St. Joseph. And um, I was wondering if you could uh, mention a few that come to mind uh, yes. for those who want to uh, go a little further in, uh, in studying uh, St. Joseph. Yes. Um, one important work on the history of the devotion is by Thelios, the man closest to Jesus. Unfortunately, the book is out of print. You can probably find it in a library someplace. Um, there's also a book published on St. Joseph by uh, the Opus Dei Press, and I forget the title, I forget the name of their press now, uh, on St. Joseph by a a man named Suarez, not to be confused with the Jesuit Suarez of earlier centuries. Uh, one of my favorite works, again, that's out of print is by a Dominican father, Yamara, called St. Joseph. It was published in 1964. Uh, and by B. Herder, it doesn't exist anymore unless it's been reprinted, but it's a very profound book. Um, uh, lately, uh, one of my students came out with a, an extraordinary book, a uh, former student of mine, and I forgot his name, <laughs> so you'll have to forgive me. It's uh, out there called Consecration to St. Joseph. Also, a classmate of mine produced a book similar to this called the Consecration to St. Joseph, according to Louis de Montfort, um, called Dominic de Domenico. And um, I think you can still purchase it uh, online somewhere. Those are just some of the books that come to my mind right off the top of my head. I, I can easily go, go to my library and type them all out. Great, thank you. Um, our next question comes from Stephen on Zoom. Um, he asks, how is Joseph and, Mary, Joseph and Mary's marriage valid if they did not intend to have children? Um, first of all, they took what is called a conditional vow of chastity, virginity. This is the, this is the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, a conditional vow of chastity, that if it was God's will, they would be willing to forego the conjugal act and generate children. If it was not God's will, they would do that. And then once it became evident to them through the Holy Spirit and, uh, and the angel Gabriel, then they made an absolute vow of virginity. It was a valid contract. They gave rights to one another. They chose not to exercise those rights. And the marriage was faithful. It had offspring from heaven. That's why this motherhood and this fatherhood and this marriage is, is, is beyond nature. It's, it's supernatural. 
and uh, and they also had a bond, a sacrament, not a sacrament, a, a, a powerful bond with one another, a friendship. That would be the simplest way of explaining it without going into any further detail. Um, what are we to make of the silence of St. Joseph? So this is referring to um, the fact that he's not quoted, right, um, as, um, in, in Scripture. The purpose um, of the silence is because the Scriptures are about the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world, and Mary, the mother of the Savior of the world, on the intrinsic, uh, intrinsically, he comes from her womb. St. Joseph's necessity is more extrinsic. He's on the outside, guarding, protecting, supporting, uh, taking care of the family, and leading the family, but doesn't give anything intrinsically from his being to that family. From, from, he has renounced that. And so that would be one reason for the silence. Uh, another reason that if there was more written about him, perhaps more people would become more uh, devoted to St. Joseph than to Jesus. Perhaps that's another reason why uh, there's such an absolute silence about Joseph. All right, our next question comes from Dylan on YouTube. Um, you got into this uh, a little bit in your talk. Um, but maybe this is an opportunity to, um, to go into it a little bit more. Um, he asks, how do we learn more about persons such as St. Joseph uh, beyond scripture? So uh, certainly we can have confidence in the truth of descriptions of fatherhood generally, but, but uh, specifically referring to his personality or character traits. So, um, so in your lecture, you talked a little bit about you know, Christ's personality, um, and then uh, you know, what are sort of some other ways where we can feel with, with some confidence what um, well, um, there's first of all, we have to keep in mind it's 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 Christ's psychological outlook. He's he's the, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. That, that's that's his personhood. Um, now, to answer more immediately your question, one of the ways in which we might be able to learn more about Joseph is through daily prayer to him and discovering him to give us favors, and then reflecting upon those favors, depending on what they are, they can give us a crumb of what he is about as he is in heaven, and possibly as he was on earth. For example, when I was prior in San Francisco, we had to put a new roof on the school. It was a mess. We needed a lot of money to put it on there. I remember turning to him and praying to him. I said, would you please put a roof on this house, on the, uh, on the uh, school? And so that evening, I went to, to bed uh, in the basement of the priory, because the fire engines in the night wake me up a lot. And at 5 o'clock or 5.30 in the morning, the phone rang, and I was upset. So I, know I was not on duty, and so I answered it, and it was one of the parishioners, and he was very, very unhooked for a lot of reasons, and I tried to calm him down, calm him down, and finally he calmed down, and the same thing happened the next night. And he was just unhooked psychologically, and my words calmed him down, and then the next morning, 
I was really pooped. And I remember when after lunch, I told the woman at the switchboard, please, no calls. No sooner did I lay down for a little nap, she called. And she says, Arnie's on the, Ernie's on the line. And I said, oh, dear gosh, oh, what's going on there? And so he said, Father, I want to thank you so much for what you've done for me. I feel much better, and I want to help you in some way. So I said, why don't you give $100 to our inner city school? No, Father, I want to do something more. I said, fine, put a new roof on the school. It will cost you such and such amount of money. Fine, I'll pay for it. Just don't tell my wife. <laughs> well, you see, there was Joseph looking out for a building. <laughs> Very Josephine of him, you know, a carpenter. And uh, that stayed with me all these years. That's, that was just a tiny crumb of St. Joseph's, a little help. Then when you read some of the lives of the contemporary saints who had uh, St. Joseph as their patron, sometimes you get um, a little glimpse. Um, I'm thinking of Henri Bissette. If you read something about the miracles that he performed, he might have said something a little bit about Joseph that would tell you something about, about Joseph's personality, but it's meant to be hidden, most of it, most would be hidden, but he does answer a lot of prayers. Scott from Zoom asks, or sorry, Lisa from Zoom asks, why do you, we say Jesus is descended from the house of David when he is not the blood of Joseph? Well, it might be for several reasons. I'm not a scripture scholar, but certainly a lot of the fathers of the church thought that the humanity of Jesus was in part taken from the blood of Mary. That'd be the first thing. And somehow she's related to David. Okay? Secondly, we can say that somehow, extrinsically, um, on the extrinsic level, since Jesus was commanded, pardon me, since Joseph was commanded by God through the angel to take Joseph, to take Jesus as his son, and to treat him as his son, from that point of view, extrinsically, we could call him a son of David would be the only two explanations that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. Um, Scott from Zoom asks, uh, if you could please elaborate on the title of your talk, How is Joseph the Savior of the Savior of the World? Oh, I thought that was obvious. I'm okay. sorry. But remember, when Herod was killing, going to kill all these people, Joseph obeyed the angel and left for Egypt to save him. And so that's why that phrase, Joseph, savior of the savior, you know, he saved him from death. He's, but he's, he's a savior with a small s and Jesus with a big s. That, that's about uh, the only way I can explain it. All right. Um. So um, Amanda from YouTube asks, um, how 
Um, how can we understand Joseph as Catholic if he died uh, before Jesus's public ministry? So maybe maybe this would be an opportunity to talk a little bit about you know how um, yeah these these figures who uh, you know we see in the gospel who perhaps died before Jesus's ministry. How are they kind of brought into the fold of the church? Hmm, that's that's like a complex question. First of all, is was Joseph a Catholic? That'd be my first thought you were trying Yeah, sorry, exactly, exactly. Was Joseph a Catholic? Well, far as we know, he wasn't baptized. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't somehow engraced with redemptive graces, as Mary was given redemptive graces. Was Mary baptized? Maybe, perhaps, we don't know. We speculate. Um, did Joseph have to be baptized? No. Did anybody in the Old Testament have to be baptized? They weren't. But they were, the, the males were given uh, circumcision. It was Jesus himself. Was Jesus baptized? Yes, by John the Baptist, but not by the same baptism that Jesus instituted. That was for us. Mary and Joseph were outside of the category of fallen human nature as we are yet still humans in need of grace. So therefore, we can say that they are, uh, they are, as the Old Testament people are, part of the church, somehow integrated the church, although Mary's the mother of the church, and Joseph is the patron of the church, since it was Jesus who created the church, and they were the ones who ministered and fostered to Jesus. That would be the, the beginnings of a long discussion that I would, that would be the direction I'd take. 